Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. Hey, how are you feeling today? I had a dental mishap over the weekend, and I've spent the past two days in the dentist office getting a tooth removed and an implant put in. So I think Lori will be doing most of the talk in the night because I'm in some serious... I'm not in pain, I just ate. But, uh, uh, well... I can't tell from looking at you if anything you got a big old grin on your face. They giving you some good pain meds or what? I just got like right here in my hand. I got some over the counter. My dentist was like, "Don't waste money. I could give you a prescription, but just go to a drugstore, get some Ambisol top. You'll be fine." And I realized he's right. Well, I'm happy that you're uh, you're still able to record. So thank you for that. What are we talking about today? Peter Gabriel's 1986 album, So. Which oh, was, I'm so, so excited for this one. Go ahead. <laughs> it was definitely a monumental album. It was everywhere in 86, and arguably this was his most commercially accessible album. And I, I would also say his most successful album. This is the album that I think really made Peter Gabriel an international superstar. I'm not sure I really knew who he was at the time yet. No. I think I'd remembered Shock the Bucky, but when this came, I was like, who, who is this? Why is everybody freaking out? I remember, you know, a little bit of his stuff when he was with Genesis. And, I mean, I remember it was a big deal when he left Genesis. He was always kind of in the prog rock vein originally, you know? And then when he struck out on his own, he really got very experimental. Well, he's always been a very experimental musician. But I think he was really kind of typecast, I think, as this kind of, you know, experimental, out there kind of musician. And I think this was the first album that really got a lot of mainstream play. Well, he had a minor hit with Shock the Monkey in what, 83, 82? Yeah, he recorded Shock the Monkey in 82, so I think that one did come out in 83. I mean, he also had in 80 Salisbury Hill that was really big. Which has been used in every movie trailer ever, <laughs> you know, in the last 30 years. Was it Biko before this, too? Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, I remember. I think I might have seen that video. I can't remember. How about Games Without Frontiers? I don't think I knew of that until later on in life, either. I didn't, you know, like I said, I had no idea who he was. I was like, who? Okay. So... Let's talk a little bit about the recording of this album, and then we'll do a track-by-track deep dive. All right. So, Trey, Peter Gabriel had rented an old farmhouse in Somerset in England. This was called Ashcombe House, and he had converted the barn into a recording studio. 
So this barn is where he recorded his previous 1982 album, Peter Gabriel. Now, his previous four albums were all called Peter Gabriel. So this was the album that had Shock the Monkey on it. Uh, he'd also recorded a soundtrack for a really obscure film in this, this farmhouse. So this is kind of where he was. And I understand that it took, it was almost a year to the day for Peter Gabriel to finish this album. That's about how long it took him. And according to producer Dan Lenoy, he had no idea that that was actually very fast for Peter. As a matter of fact, there was a story, uh, there's a documentary, it's one of those, what is it called? Like making the album documentaries on you know classic rock and they're actually interviewing the producer peter lenoy and i guess at one point he got so frustrated with peter because he was taking so long on a song that he actually nailed the barn door shut while peter was in it so that he couldn't get out you know the idea was okay here you are i'm locking you in until you get your work done the crew and everything, they all went to lunch. Everyone's like, oh, where's Peter? Where's Peter? You know, nobody knew. But uh, they were saying, and Peter Gabriel, from what I understand, is a very gentle soul. He does not have a violent bone in his body. And he somehow managed to remove the frame from the door and get out. And then he says to the producer, let's step outside and talk. And I don't know what was said there, but I just this idea of, the producer nailing Peter Gabriel into a barn because he wasn't moving fast enough on this album. I think it's hilarious. Peter was going through a very heavy kind of world music phase at this point, and you hear this in the album. It's very heavily influenced with a lot of Brazilian and African drum rhythms, and actually some of the guest musicians that he brings in are from those cultures. So you know how I mentioned that his previous four albums were all called Peter Gabriel? Mm -hmm. This was his first album that was not named after himself, yeah. and it was just called So. The reason that he chose this short moniker for the album was because it looked really good on a poster. You can take those two letters and blow it up really big, and it looks fantastic. You know, short, one-word titles look really, really good blown up. And then he would follow this naming convention for mm -hmm. the next two albums, right? He had Us, and then he had Up. What year did that come out? 2002. There's really yeah. a big gap. Yeah, There's a big, say. big gap there. You know, like I said, that one-year turnaround for this album was apparently very unusual for him. He puts out his music when he is damn good and ready, and nobody's going to tell him otherwise. This album starts off with Red Rain, which is a an excellent song. Well, probably the best song on the album, in my opinion. One of the best songs on the album. Super, let's listen.
right? Why do you like Red Rain so much? I, I don't know. All those layered scents, really. Yeah. Oh, and I knew you were going <laughs> to... I've saved... Uh, I, I have a couple notes on synths, but I know you're the synth boy. So I'm leaving most of the synths to you in this episode. This is some excellent use of a Fairlight CMI, which Duran Duran also used heavily. And it's just the layered strings and all that. It's amazing. Some good examples of sampling in this song that most people may not even realize it. It's it's really a gorgeous song. So many so many songs on this album have so many sonic layers where you just really have to put it on on headphones and just immerse yourself and listen actively. You know, don't just put it on in the background, but like really listen because there's so much going on. I I, I could see where Daniel Lenoy probably got irritated during the production of this because mixing that must have been a freaking chore. Uh, I mean, that must have it must have taken a month to mix this song alone. I mean, it's just uh, it's phenomenal, there. You know, also, you know, I, I had no idea to on a YouTube there was a video for this song. This was it was actually the second single off of the album that was released in '86 here in the U.S. Yeah, but it was one. But it wasn't released in the rest of the world till 87. And as a result, it ended up getting less airplay and fewer sales elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So that that beautiful hi-hat, that rhythmic cymbal playing that almost sounds like rain. You know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? You know who that is? Yeah. Uh, who? Stuart Copeland from the police. That's, actually a, that's, not a, that's not a sample? No, he actually brought in Stuart Copeland to play the, the wow. cymbals on that. Isn't that amazing? Well, you just taught me something. I was like, that's a sample. That's got to be a... I thought it was a Lindrum, to be honest with you. Yeah, so Peter Gabriel requested Stuart Copeland because he is a, quote, virtuoso of the hi-hat. The rest of the drumming on the album is Peter's regular drummer, Jerry Marotta. On Peter's previous albums, he had a rule. No cymbals or hi-hats. If you listen to any of his earlier music, he did not allow any cymbals or hi-hats because he felt that it would detract from the rest of the music. So even the fact that he not even just brought in, oh my God, Stuart Copeland, right? But even just the fact that he has this hi-hat cymbal on this album was huge for Peter. It was a well, huge step for him. That's some damn interesting factoid right there. I, I'm going to have to go back after we tape and might listen to some of his older songs look for that that's that's interesting yeah i thought it was interesting too that's just weird do you know anything about the story behind this song you die so I've, I've heard a few different versions of this it was inspired by a dream that peter had had i i've kind of got the impression that he has some pretty weird trippy dreams I've heard different versions of it, but the one that I'm most likely to believe is actually the one that Peter was recalling in this Making the Album documentary. He was talking about how he had a dream, and it was like the parting of the Red Sea, and there were two walls on either side. And he said something about how there were these bottles, but these bottles were like animated, like walking, almost like they were human. And they were empty, and that they would walk up to one side of the wall and they would like get filled up with blood and then they'd walk across to the other wall and then they'd like hook up into something and they'd get drained. I mean, really kind of weird, trippy stuff. 
Did he watch Fantasia before he had the string? <laughs> and it sounds like something yeah. from from Fantasia, like a, doesn't it? A horror movie version of it. Yeah. So you mentioned that this is your favorite track on the album, Trey. Mm -hmm. Peter knew very early on that this was going to be the opening track. He said he wanted the album to, quote, crash open at the front. And it does. Oh, it absolutely does. This is an absolute gorgeous. Anything else about track one? I think we wrapped it up. Sorry, I'm going to be twisting my tongue a lot tonight. Maybe, well, you'll leave a few in and y'all can laugh I at I think me. I will. Um, I think I will. I think it's cute. <laughs> I think that about covers it for that one. Okay, so what do we got next? And we've got Sledgehammer, which actually released the day after my 16th birthday on April 21st, 1986. Here we go. I think they've been playing the video for a few weeks by this point, haven't they? I don't know. It's I, I don't know when the video was released. Now, I, I think for most people that were around in the 80s, when you think of Sledgehammer, you think of that video, right? Mm -hmm. The dancing chickens. Mm-hmm. Right? It was, uh, you know, this, this, was, uh, <laughs> this was all over the place when it came out. It was one of those songs that was an instant hit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, like yeah. The, the single came out, the videos, and then TV, and just bam. Every, within a day, the whole country was singing it. It's amazing what a song does that. And that video, like you just mentioned, was something else. Yeah, the video won nine MTV Music Awards yeah. in 1987. It was stop-motion animation, and it was the most awards a single video has ever won. Peter apparently spent nine hours a day in a glass box. Well, they were oh, really? The, yeah, doing the steady, you know, the stop motion shots of his head. So, can you imagine that? You know, I could see, I, I could see Peter doing that because he's so dedicated to his I art. What exactly? But I was trying to get out. Yeah, My mouth is arguing with me. Oh yeah, I don't think there any been a video anything like that remotely at that point in time. Had there, that was just all. No. It was really, really groundbreaking. And actually, Trey, you mentioned this was the first single off the album. Mm -hmm. This was also Peter Gabriel's only number one U.S. hit. I thought big time hit number one, but I guess I was mistaken. Mm -hmm. The entire summer of 86, you couldn't take a step out here. It was on MTV every five minutes, it seems like. I remember being at Oak Street Beach here in Chicago with my godfather and... Somebody near us on the beach had a boombox, and yeah, mm -hmm. this song kept coming on. And that groovy bass line, man. Well, that bass line is amazing. 
When you hear that on a really, really, really good old school stereo setup, it just thunders. Yes. Okay. So that bass line is Tony Levin. Yeah. And it's really kind of an old school rock, funk, soul blend. I'm going to read the exact quote that Peter said. I loved R&B soul music. And so in a way, this was a little bit of homage to that. So this is Peter Gabriel trying to do R&B and soul. Uh, he also brought in some Stax Records musicians to form the horn section. Wayne Jackson, Mark Rivera, and Don Mickelson. By, you know, Stax Records, I, I'm sure you're familiar with is oh, yeah, like old, old blues and soul. So who better to play on this song than those three? So, synth boy. This is now your nickname, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Do you want to talk about any of the synths on this song? I, I mean, it's at Fairlight again, and it's a sequel sequential. There's so many S's in this episode, and S's aren't what I need to be saying today. Sequ <laughs> sequential <laughs> Circuits Prophet 5, which was also an early sampler, is very prominent on the song. And also uh -huh. the Fairlight. I I did some searching on the internet. I feel like there's a DX7 heavily used on this LP, and other people do too. Peter gives it no credit. There's definitely some things in there. We'll get to that here a couple, another two or three songs down the down yeah. the course of the album. There's definitely one of those in there. So you mentioned the Prophet Five synthesizer, that and that was what he used to get the cheap kind of organ sound you know mm -hmm. it, it's almost got like a, a carnival sound to it that was the prophet five and then you know i was very surprised to learn that the flute intro was an emu emulator 2 sampler i mm -hmm. legitimately thought it was a flautist i mean it, it sounded good you know it didn't sound synthesized to me the, the emu and the flare light both had libraries of floppy discs sounds out for them but you could just load it in and it, it was actual recordings of a real instrument so oh essentially what you were playing but on a keyboard i i, I can't imagine how many horns and uh, what do you call it woodwind instruments you hear in the 80s that are actually synthesizers that people think are real this is right in that period where all the samplers came out all this stuff was just computer technology was being used to help record and, you know, produce out. So this was, Peter was on top of all that. Oh, he was always at the forefront of integrating new technology into his music and into his sound. But like even an example like this, this is such a great example of blending the electronic with the organic. And the end result, when it's done well, I mean, this is what you get. You get a number one hit like Sledgehammer. Well, I mean, there's there's some genius mixing on this album too. This is there was a top ten list of best mixed albums in history. This one would for sure be in there. Top five. Hey, I think you may be right. I think you may be right on that. Uh, real quick before we move on to the next track, I do want to touch a little bit on the subject matter of the song, the lyrics. It's one of those that, you know, when I was listening to it when I was younger, I didn't really get what it was about. But now that I'm older, it's a very, I guess, for lack of a better word, it's a very sexual song. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, all it's it, all of the things that Peter is talking about, you know, 
And especially when they start talking about, you know, like, open up your fruitcakes, I'll be your honeybee. I mean, it's there's definitely this very sexual subtext to it. Gloria, I was 16 years old, and the first time I heard it, I went, he's singing about fucking. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, I was 12, and I did not know any better. I, I, I hadn't even done it yet, but I knew what he was singing about. That would happen later on that summer, but um, <laughs> that's funny. Okay. The video didn't tip you off, the intro, the video with the sperm oh, on I guess, well, there was sperm, but then there was also blood and blood vessels, and... Well, what happens when that happens? Yeah, and then, then you end up with chickens, yeah. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't know that? You've never seen the dancing pregnant <laughs> lady chickens before? Come on. Um, Trey, <laughs> I'm gonna... I'm gonna move on to the next song. That's hilarious. Sorry, you're Inter so funny. Everybody, listen and make fun of her in the comments on the on the post on this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the next song, track three. Don't give up. Now this one has guest vocals by the legendary Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominee Kate Bush. In this proud land we grew up strong We were wanted all along I was taught to fight, taught to win I never thought I could fail No fight left or so it seems I am a man whose dreams have all deserted I've changed my face, I've changed my name This was my intro to her. You know, I think it, it, this is the first time I had a name to put with the vocal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had never heard her. You know who was originally supposed to sing the female vocal? I do not. Who? Well, originally, Peter wanted Dolly Parton. And I guess Peter's people sent Dolly a demo tape, but she had no idea who the hell is this Peter Gabriel guy, so she never responded. And the reason that he wanted Dolly Parton is because this song was inspired by the photography of Dorothea Lang, who did uh, a lot of those Great Depression era Dust Bowl photos. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those are right. Great. To him, it would make perfect sense to have Dolly, you know, country icon, you write from the Appalachians, sing that part. The, the lyrics are about a man whose unemployment causes stress in his domestic relationship, right? That line, for every job, so many men, so many men no one needs. And so there's this kind of despair coming from Peter, but then we have the juxtaposition, right? We have Kate singing, don't give up, you still have friends, right? And you can kind of see this is the supportive wife or supportive partner, and um, it's really, oh God, it's such a beautiful song. I still get the chills when I hear it. 
Yeah, it's a great song. This is another one with the, the I, I can't keep saying this about this album. Those layered synths all over the place. Uh-huh. And she, you know, she was a big user of the Fairlight CMI too. And probably the Bush. The, yeah, oh yeah. I think she brought like the second one bait. Might have been the first one bait. Oh wow. We talked a little bit about Tony Levin, the bassist. Mm-hmm. I think the bass really kind of carries this song very nicely. Oh, definitely. In order to get that kind of, they had to dampen the sound a little bit so it didn't overpower the rest of the music. And so he had traveled with his family and they brought a bunch of diapers with them for his kid. And what he did is he actually took one of the diapers and put it under the bass strings to dampen the sound. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why they just didn't gate it through the mix. I don't know. Or use a I pedal. don't know. You could, they can make pedals that'll, that'll do that. I don't know the proper term. It, it is interesting. Don't get me wrong here. That's what a weird way to go about doing that. That's what, but sometimes they'll put blankets in a bass drum. You ever notice that? The same concept. So, Don't Give Up was the fifth single from the album in the U.S., and it was the second single in the U.K., so they kind of went in a different order in the U.S. So, by the time we heard this, we'd already heard four other singles off of this album, and I think that maybe this one didn't get as much airplay as it should have, but I recently read an interview with Elton John, and Elton John credits this song with helping him get sober. I remember reading that. Especially the part where Kate sings, Rest your head, you worry too much. It's going to be all right. When times get rough, you can fall back on us. And he heard that and, and he really internalized that. And he has said that this song helped him get sober isn't that wild that's pretty cool i wonder what peter's had to say about that i'm sure Elton called him was like hey mate you know <laughs> interesting conversation to hear because like you said peter seems like a genuinely cool guy yeah yeah i think that about covers that that's like i said that was my intro to kate bush and i believe i heard running up the running up <laughs> Running up that hill just sometime between May and June of that year for the first time and made the connection. Okay. Up next, we have that voice again. And let's listen to it, and I'll say something about it here.
So that little piano thing here at the beginning, I'm I, I'm about 99.9% convinced that's a DX7. Okay. Because that, that sounds like one of the stock DX7 sounds to me. I've actually got a DX7 on my computer now. I told you I've been fooling with it. I'm, I was playing that tone, and I'm like, that, that's got to be that. They just warped it a little. But this song just takes such a drastic change there from the intro. You know, that little 30 seconds in her just boom, the whole tone of the song just completely changes. The intro of this song just really tricks you, because it sounds like it's going to be almost synth-poppy at first. So it just takes a very sharp left turn there. And again, with like the different sonic layers, there's Gosh. so much going on. You got to really actively listen to this song to hear yeah. all of the different l instruments, just the little effects tucked in here and there, you know? Like I said, that mix in this album must have just been unreal. I'm surprised there's not a documentary about this album, to be honest with you. There is that classic albums series. Yeah, but those things are, do you ever watch one of those? All the time. Didn't we talk about the Duran Duran on this very show? Unreal. We might have. We might have. I mean, because they did one on Rio. Yeah. Uh, they did They did one on Steely Dance Asia, which is one of my all-time top 10 favorite albums. Really? I would argue that this one probably is too, yeah. I didn't know that about Steely Dan. Oh, yeah. But I mean, no, in terms of like the greatest albums of all time, I think Asia and So, I think are probably way up there. Interesting. Oh, I, I love the Dan. They've got some songs I like, sure. They're very talented people. I don't know a whole lot about them. Okay, so that voice again. The original title of this song was First Stone, as in Let He Who Has Never Sinned Cast the First Stone. And Peter changed the title because he wanted it to be a little less biblical. But that voice is the voice of judgment. Judging people, it kind of becomes a barrier, right? You, you can't, you can't really connect and relate to somebody if you're, if you're judging them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. He had said in an interview in Musician Magazine that the song actually has a very heavy influence by the Birds, right? The the '60s band. And I, I guess I could kind of see it with like the different layers of guitars, that kind of shimmery guitar sound and stuff that's in there. Yes, it's just definitely got a psychedelic vibe to it, as you pointed out. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's interesting how someone can give you a new context on a song that totally changes. You're like, oh, wait, yeah, right. I see it now. Yeah, where, where there's influences maybe where you wouldn't have necessarily expected them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so Trey, we're going to flip the the album over to side two. And this is where it might get a little confusing to some people because there have been numerous orders for the track listings over the years, and we're doing the original 1986 release. So it might be a little bit different than what some of you remember. Was it did the track order differ in each country? or No, actually, I will talk about why okay. the track order was different in just a moment. All right. But do you want to introduce the song? Up next, we have it. There's not a person on the planet that doesn't know this doggone song. Either from this album or that movie, but it's in your eyes, of course. Without a noise, without my pride, I 
This one has a distinction of being a hit. Was it released in 86? It was. And then it was released again, a live version in, I want to say, 94. So it was released the summer of 89 ago. The movie thing just completely dropped out of my head. Say anything. Yeah, I had the cassette single that summer, and the B-side was a fishbone song. Oh, okay. That's where I think that's one of the most commonly known version of the song came out, right? With the, with the uh, movie? Yeah, with the, what's the guy, is it, S- I can't say the man's name, the African singer. Yusu Endor. Yes. Yes. I love that Peter brought him on as a guest vocalist. Mm-hmm. Again, with that whole world music vibe thing. So I am actually checking the release dates on this single because I know it was released twice. Yeah, okay. So the the edit used for Say Anything was a shorter version. Mm-hmm. And that was, as you said, 89. Uh, the, the song re-entered the Billboard Hot 100, but it only, only reached number 41 that time around. The first time around, it got a lot higher. Did it? I don't... I, yeah. I don't remember being out 86, 87. I, don't, I remember hearing it back then, but I... Remember noticing it really in 89. Yeah, it was released in September of 86, and it peaked at number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100. Interesting, huh? No recollection. Yeah. No record. Here I go again. I can't recall that. And, you know, interestingly enough, Trey, it was not released as a single in the UK. It was only released in the US. Interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, if you've tried to look this song up on YouTube, for our listeners out there, there's, I don't know how many versions of it, and I'm not even sure which ones are official, or which ones some DJ did, and which ones are, you know. Well, <laughs> the producer, Dan Lenoy, yeah. when he was interviewed about this for that Making the Album documentary, he said that there were 96 takes Price. And that he was literally going through and piecing, okay, a couple of bars from this take, a couple of bars, one bar from that take. Wow. And you want to talk about, you know, the, the production value on this and how painstakingly it was edited. And that right there, I think, illustrates that. And probably using a computer with like 64 megabytes of RAM, or actually 64K of RAM doing this. So think about that. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, Trey, I can't even edit our podcast with 16 gigabytes of RAM. I had to upgrade to 32. Yeah. So. So, yeah. It was, it was most likely an Atari ST computer. That's what they were using at that point in time. That was the e-rigger computer to use for music production. So. And I don't think Pro Tools was a thing yet, no, was it? Not even, not even on the horizon. Okay. So, guest musicians... So, we mentioned Yusu Endure, 
And that part at the end where he's doing the tribal singing, Peter has described that as open ecstasy. And that is such a beautiful way to describe it because that part of the song, it is really a climax. It is just such so beautiful and so happy. There's another guest vocalist on this I wonder if you're even aware of. It's a woman, isn't it? Well, no. I mean, there may be. That's not the person I'm thinking of. Who is it? Jim Care from Simple Minds. Really? How can I not run across that reading about this? Yes, he is Why one would... of the backing vocalists on this song. For those of you out there listening, I know you, there's that one version of the song that everybody does. The song YouTube as the special radio edit. That's the six-minute version of the I Want to Stand and Stare. And the little spoken word thing almost there at the end. And I'm not sure when that was even added in. Do you know? I, I, I'm not familiar with that version. I'm sorry. Okay, I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say I I, I I don't know that version. That's the version that gets played all the time now. You're like me. You don't listen to radio, so you wouldn't know. Right, I this, right. I hear that version at work on the Act at least three times a week. Huh. Okay, so there's two things that we got to talk about within your eyes. One of them is the track order. Why is this album ordered the way it is, and why in later releases did they change it? Well, Peter's original intention was to make this the ending track. You know, just like the album comes in with a crash with Red Rain, <laughs> it's going to go out with this open ecstasy in your eyes. But this song has some really heavy bass. Oh, yeah. And uh, particularly with vinyl albums. Now, this is not something that I knew. There's something with the way the needle moves in the groove of the vinyl LP where if it's close to the center of the rotating album, it the, the, the needle of the LP doesn't vibrate as well and you don't get that rich bass sound. The only way that you could get that on a vinyl LP was to put the track at the very beginning so it's on the outside of the album and there's something with the way then that the, the needle vibrates that it captured that bass. Now, in later releases, when it came out on like CD and digitally, he then moved this track to the end of the album because that's where he originally wanted it. But that's why this track appears at the beginning of Side 2. That is completely miles away from what I thought you were going to say about that. That's damn interesting. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about a record company and this and that, you know. But doesn't that really kind of show how dedicated Peter is to just the, the sound and his craft, right? That they'd even be cognizant of that. I mean, I guess that's their job, but... That's, that's very interesting. Okay, so now let's talk about who this song is about. I know we've mentioned her in a previous podcast. Have we? Yes, we have. You know who this song is about, Trey. I actually don't. It's, it's, it has escaped my mind. Okay. No more asses for the rest of the episode. I got this out <laughs> I'm like, you're, you're feeling that anesthesia, Good huh? Good Lord. Speaking of S's, anesthesia, that word. It's like deliberately made so you can't pronounce it when you're under anesthesia, right? <laughs> anesthesia. I'm on anesthesia today. 
But uh, yeah, no. So this song was written by Peter about Rosanna Arquette. I did know that. Yes, you did, because we've talked about it. Yeah, they dated for a while, didn't they? They did, right. I would, I would date Rosanna Arquette. <laughs> God, what an amazing, what an amazing love song to write about somebody, right? In your eyes, the light, the heat, I am complete. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, that would bring tears to my eyes if somebody wrote that song about me. But this is actually not the first song that has been written about Rosanna Arquette. No, not at all. So what one are you thinking of, Trey? Well, there's Toto. Rosanna by Toto, right? I think there's, there's a couple, three or four more out there. You know, she is our generation's Patty Boyd. Who is Patty Boyd? It was all oh my God. Now, now's my chance to say, how do you not know? That's no, I did. That's why I did it like that. I gave you the opportunity. Oh, you set me up. Okay, softball. Thank you. I, re I really have no idea who she is. Oh, okay. No, Patty Boyd was married to George Harrison of the Beatles. Oh, he wrote. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think which which song he wrote about her. It was that one something. You know, something in the way she moves. You know, again, and again, oh my God, gorgeous, gorgeous love song. But she had a few other songs written about her, notably Layla by Eric Clapton. Mm -hmm. And Eric, well, even though Patty was married to George, Eric was in love with Patty. Ultimately, she did leave George Harrison and married Eric Clapton. That didn't end too well either. But, you know, the idea of this muse inspiring not just Eric Clapton, but George Harrison, you know, arguably two of the biggest songwriters of their generation. Now we have Rosanna Arquette inspiring Peter Gabriel. I don't know if I would say that Toto are some of the biggest songwriters of our generation, but still, you know, it's amazing god to even have one song written about you is noteworthy right but two i was just looking here rosanna just got divorced did she yeah she's only 10 years older than me so there's a chance you know it can happen you and her <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think for rosanna she's got that all american girl look and i've never been like the blonde blonde hair and blue eyes type of guy though i have dated a few of those but i can see where people just swing over her she's definitely attractive and she's a great actress she's a very talented yeah. actress yes but she seems like a cool person i was gonna say right around this time period she was in desperately seeking susan with madonna yes that was yes. um I think that was 85 or 84. 85, yeah. right. And then this, this album was released in 86. So, yeah. And as you mentioned, Trey, the iconic scene in the movie, Say Anything, where John Cusack is in the girl's front yard holding uh -huh. up his boombox over his head and playing this song. My, my high school girlfriend drugged me to see this movie that summer. Well, we were actually out of high school at this point, but uh -huh. I hated it. As an adult, I like it, but that I was like, this is terrible. 
you know, you want to talk about iconic movie moments for our generation. That moment right there, even if you don't, you've never seen the movie, even if you have no frame of reference, you know that image of John Cusack with the boombox over his head, right? During the pandemic, do you remember the very early days of the pandemic, Trey, when there were toilet paper shortages? How could I forget? And there is a video that was going around on YouTube where a guy found a big 24-pack of toilet paper. It was, like, so scarce. And he's standing on the lawn, holding it up over his head, just like John Cusack with the boombox, and he's playing in your eyes while his wife, girlfriend, significant mm -hmm. other... Is is you know the video I'm talking about? You know how gas stations have those really giant rolls of toilet paper. Yeah, so I hate those. Actually, when when all that was going on, I, me and my female companion stopped at a gas station one night because I had to pee. We were about to run out of toilet paper at home and couldn't find any. And, and when I went in there to pee, I looked and the thing was so I guess I made this guy left it unlocked. Oh, so did you yeah, take it? This was, yes, this was in Michigan, so I had on my leather paper jacket, so I stuck it in my jacket, held it with my arm, and shot out the door with it, and got in the car. My friend is like, what are you doing? I'm like, get out of here, go. She goes driving down the street, and I pull it out, and she's like, first she was going to get mad, and then she was like, actually, we kind of need that, as much as I hate that stuff. And you're, you're walking out like you're in some heist movie, you know, go, 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 go. Probably looked like I was holding a gun, yeah. Right, right. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, Trey Simmons, toilet paper thief. It was from the 7-Eleven on Walden Avenue in Detroit, Michigan, just outside of Auburn Hills. <laughs> oh my God, you're so funny. Okay, so the next track, Trey, after In Your Eyes, this is my favorite track on the album, Trey. This is Mercy Street. And this is, you're going to get mad at me, but this is where this album nosedives to me. What? It just gets so, I can't solve, not solve, but it just gets so, just tapers off to me. It's a little less pop on this song. You know, I mean, again, kind of Peter keeping with the more experimental sounds with the synth and everything. This is when it really gets world music eating me, and I, I just don't care for that whole thing. Not that it's bad, it's just not my cup of tea. It does have a Brazilian foro drum mm -hmm. beat. I hope I'm saying that name right. I love, again, the sonic layers here. If you listen very carefully, there's actually two layers of vocals, and they're both Peter. There's his normal 
I guess, range, mm-hmm. we would say. And then there's one that's that's so deep, and it's almost, almost but not quite spoken. And apparently it was very difficult to get Peter down into that lower octave. So what they discovered, you, you know how sometimes when you wake up in the morning, you know how you kind of have morning voice? I've heard other singers say this very same thing. Yeah, so what they did is they had Peter sleep in the studio overnight, and they woke him up at 7 a.m., and they had him record that lower octave vocal right when he woke up. And it's it's gorgeous. It's just got this kind of almost purring quality about it. You know what I mean? It's got like a dreamier quality, and that's what he was going for, like a, a, a sensual dreamlike environment for this song now i never knew and i mean this is was my favorite from the very beginning uh for the first time i heard it but i never knew until recently that mercy street is by a lady named ann sexton it's a play called mercy street and then she also has a poem called 45 mercy street but you you don't care for this one huh no 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 it, it's, like I said, it's not a bad song. It's just, I don't know. It's almost like it, three of these last four tracks just seem out of place on the album. Let me say, no, I hadn't listened to the South much. I couldn't tell you the last time I listened to the little thing start to finish, you know, up until the past week. So it just, I don't know, it just takes such a different turn to me. You know, I, I know I've mentioned before and, and and I don't know that there's a good way to capture this in an audio podcast. Music to me evokes certain visual images. No, of course. And there is an image in my head when I hear this that is basically a moving watercolor painting, but it's mostly darker, uh, darker shades, but. I wish that I was a better visual artist because ever since high school, I have been trying to somehow express or capture what it is I see when I hear this song, and I can't do it. I can't do it justice. Someday, Trey. That's pretty interesting. And it's frustrating to me because I can't I can't get out the images that I see in my head, and I don't know how to do that. I don't have those skills either. I've always wished I could draw a pay. I just don't have it in me. Yeah. Trey, do you want to introduce the next song for us? Up next, we have Big Time. I think was the the, <laughs> the second big U.S. smash off of this LP. 
all those S's everywhere. But this was also, and had an equally as groundbreaking video as Sledgehammer. Yeah, this one was a little bit more computer generated, but again, with oh, yeah. the like animation techniques, you're absolutely right. I think this video was a blend of stop motion and just tradition. Yeah, there was a little bit of claymation. Yeah. You're with me. Yeah. Okay. It was a uh -huh. great video. It was a great song, too. So, Big Time peaked at number eight on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was the fourth single off of the album. The lyrics, if you listen very closely, are very much satirizing 80s materialism. Oh, yeah. You know, the whole greed totally. is good culture. Yeah. This was right in the yuppie thing. So, I want to talk a little bit about the bass here, Trey. Yeah. And so, this is Tony Levin again. And when they were recording this, Tony Levin and the drummer, Jerry Murata, teamed up. And they had Tony handling the fingerings of the bass while Jerry was hitting the strings with his drumsticks. And it resulted in a very unique kind of percussive sound. Now, this would later inspire something that I know you're very interested in. What's that? An invention. Funk fingers? Come on, Trey. Chabin sticks? Is that the same thing as funk fingers? Yeah, pretty. Ch Chabin sticks is a brand of them. I think there's several. That's where they attach the little drumstick ends uh, to yeah, the fingers yeah, yeah. so that you can do that in concert? I think the technical name for them is Chabin sticks and funk fingers is actually a, a brand they sell. I think I had that backwards there. Hmm. Okay. But they actually fooled me because I thought the bass on this was sequenced. And you corrected me. You're like, Nick, go take a... What did you say to me? Go have a better look or look it up or... I don't remember what I said. I, I probably you're... said something... I probably said something condescending like look it up. Well, no, or I probably said... I, no, I think I said look on the uh, the liner notes. You've got... You, you're not condescending at all. You just have a really great way of telling people they're wrong without going, you're wrong, <laughs> assholes. You're polite about it. Don't think you're condescending. Oh, well, thank you. No, I think I said, go look at the liner notes. Yeah. I think that's what like I said. That. Yeah. And I, I was like, wow, I, all these years, I thought it was a sequence. I thought it was one of those Roland Bass composers. Sure as hell sounds like one. I had looked at live footage of Peter Gabriel, of Peter Gabriel before. My mouth, uh -huh. the side of my face is getting heavy. Um, oh, no. And I had seen him using those, but I, I don't know. I never really thought much about it. No, why? I mean, what is that? But, you know, but it definitely okay. gets a gets a bass playing on this album. Really interesting sound, which I don't think anyone's ever replicated in history or ever will. Really, to be honest with you, you might be right. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I'm trying to think if there are any any similar sounds that I've heard. And I, you know, I actually surprised a lot of those new metal bands of the '90s. I'm surprised one of those guys didn't get a pair of these and put them in some of that stuff because it would have worked real well. I don't care for that stuff, but I could see these working that working well on that type of music. You know, somebody like Core or something like that. Okay, I could see it. I could see it. I think that covers it for big time. That was what was it? Was it eighty seven or was it late eighty six when this one came out? I thought it was fall of eighty six, but I guess I I think it is too. I think it I think it was too. Uh, no, February of 87. Well, it wow. says February of 87, UK. 
So I think this is another one where there were different release dates in the USA and the UK. It is very possible that it came out in the US uh, at the end of 86. You also had the other weird 80s thing. The video could have been out for two months before they put out the physical single. I don't know why they would do that. Why would you do that to promote a single that people can't buy? The whole goal of the video is to get people to buy the damn who single. Knew? Well, they were trying to drive out themselves, most likely. They wanted you to go buy the whole album instead of getting the single. And then it, I guess when it hits the top 40, they have no choice but to press a single. You also have to remember, there were, there were some bands who weren't strong single sellers either. Right. People would just go out, like for The Cure, for example, which they always had a physical single, but they were more driven on album sales than anything else. So, hey, speaking of the single tray... The next track was actually the B-side for the big-time single. I think I knew that, actually. I think I had the big-time. I think it was a cassette single. That's right when those started coming out. Okay, do you want to introduce the next song? Up next, we have... How do you, is that Bilgrim's? Uh-huh. We do what we're told, Bilgrim's 37. So we definitely have we have Peter returning to his more experimental sound here. I know you don't like this one. I know you don't. I felt like he wanted me to take a nap. <laughs> well, it, it you know, I think that part of that is coming from Jerry Marat's drums because it resembles I, I read somewhere a heartbeat heard from the womb. You know, and that kind of rhythmic heartbeat I can I can see that. That makes perfect sense. So, do you know anything about who Milgram was? Oh, I was about to ask you, what is Milgram's 37? Because I'm sure there's a story behind that. There is. And actually, I do teach about this in one of my classes when we talk about... Oh, it's a computer thing. Well, it's not a computer thing. It's a psychology thing. Oh, it's wow, a psychology okay. thing. So, Dr. Milgram ran some experiments where he told the participants he he, he claimed hey I, you know i'm recruiting you as an assistant and we're going to do an experiment where i'm going to ask you if the person in the other room gets a question wrong you're going to press a button that's going to give them an electric shock oh you know the one i'm well, talking I'm about with this yeah he had a job now now there wasn't actually anybody in the other room it was all a setup but if you and there's actually footage from these experiments that you can find online and you can watch. And what was happening is as the quote unquote experiment went forward, every time that he would tell the person, okay, press the button, the lights would flicker 
you'd hear a scream from the next room, but it would get louder. And it became evident that the person was in more pain, right? Again, this was a setup. It wasn't, they weren't actually giving electrical shocks. But the really disturbing thing about it, and this study has actually been sometimes cited, for example, when someone's accused of war crimes, that of all of these people that participated, 37 of the people, even when they thought they were causing extreme physical pain to somebody else, continued to press the button because the experimenter told them to do so. We do what we're told. Yeah, I'd also like to point out here, this is what's referenced in the intro to Lady Ghostbusters. Oh, with uh, um, the... Bill Murray yeah. and the, and the yeah. blonde and the dirty dad. I just yeah. now realized that, but you, you talking about that. It has to be what they were riffing on. Yeah. So... The neat thing about this song, it, you know, the first maybe minute and a half are completely instrumental. And then eventually we kind of get to that droning, we do what we're told, told to do. But the very end of the song is optimistic. You know, one truth, one dream. And it ends with those words. So to me, you know, we're kind of breaking out of that, you know, mindless automaton droid kind of mentality. And it ends on a very optimistic note. I can totally see that now that you've pointed it out. Oops. Good Lord, what a day. I can totally see that now that you've pointed all that out. <laughs> you should, but, we leave all this in there. I hope you do. But, uh, but you still don't like the song. It's not that I don't like it. It just, I don't know. It doesn't fit the flow of the rest of the album to me. You know, I seem to remember that these last two tracks on my cassette, well, actually my sister's cassette. I stole it from her. Sorry, Cindy. I seem to remember that these last two tracks were actually indicated as bonus tracks. I was gonna, you know, I was about to say that earlier. It was one of those, Trey, where I think they may have called them bonus tracks. Yeah. But they were on the LP, they were on the cassette, they were on the CD, so are right. they really a bonus, or are we just calling them that? Now, this last song wasn't originally on the album, and during the last, uh, like, 48 hours, I think, of their recording, Peter decided to add this as a, a last-minute addition. This is called... This is the picture, excellent birds. Again, Trey, I know this is one that you don't care for. 
like I said, it's not that I don't care for them. They just you just noted they might have the bonus tracks. They're just so different than the rest of them. Yeah. Well, okay, so we have a guest vocalist again. This is Lori Anderson. Yes. She is a well known experimental musician. She was very avant garde. She was married to Lou Reed up until his death. Yes. Oh my gosh. Trey, I adore Lori Anderson. And not just because we share the same name and she spells it correctly. I recently learned from a work colleague that in Spanish that is called a tocaya, and that is when somebody shares the same name as you. It's not quite the same thing as a namesake because, of you know, a namesake is named after somebody else. And I can't say that I was named after Lori Anderson. I'm sure I wasn't, but uh, <laughs> she is my tocaya. Oh, my gosh. Something about her voice, Trey. is hypnotic absolutely hypnotic a few years ago actually it was probably about 10 years ago maybe even 12 here in chicago at the adler planetarium you know they do these sky shows in the big dome yeah i don't even remember what the sky show was but laurie anderson narrated it and trey i was just in another dimension just hearing her voice, I don't know what it is. It's mesmerizing. Well, what was that concert film she released there about 82, 83-ish? Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to look that up. Night Flight played it one night. I watched it. It just... One of those other moments in my life, I can remember, they just sort of warped my circuits on music. Fame of the Brave. Yes. 1986 American concert film... 80- was it 86? 86. Wow. So it was actually right around this time. And I think Peter Gabriel wow. may have actually been in it. Wow. I thought I was yeah. younger than that when I saw that. But anyways. Ooh, this sounds interesting. The film included appearances by guitarist Adrian Ballou. Yeah. Author William S. Burroughs. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm going to have to make a point of trying to see this because I, I actually had not heard of that, but oh my gosh, that's so cool. Pretty sure it's on YouTube. And, you know, when I saw I had no idea who these people were. Yeah. So, you know, you, you would love it. You need to watch it. Oh, I will. I, that's on my list, maybe even tonight. So, this was originally recorded. For Laurie Anderson's album back in February of 84 is when they released it. And Peter reworked it a little bit for his album, so there's some differences. I have heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that Peter and Laurie had some creative differences over how this song should sound, and that's why there are the two different versions. I don't know, again, if that's true. So the the song on Laurie Anderson's album is called Excellent Birds. And Peter and his production team interpolated another recording called This Is The Picture, which had Nile Rodgers on rhythm guitar. So that this is the picture, that mm-hmm. part, that's Nile Rodgers on rhythm guitar. I didn't know that's interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah. The other story about this song that I came across is by this time in the album, and again, this the album was pretty much over. This was the last track they were recording. Yeah. Peter was so exhausted that supposedly uh, the sound engineers were hearing snoring in their 
monitor and they're like, where's it coming from? Where's it coming from? And supposedly Peter actually fell asleep mid take and started snoring in the middle of his vocals. <laughs> That's the story. That's interesting. I'm, that can't be the first time in history that ever happened. That's pretty funny. Well, I, it surprises me. You know, Peter, we, we have this impression of him as being a consummate professional, you know. Well, I mean, a, a year working on an album. Well, and, and again, they said that for him, that's a very short turnaround. So I think, I know you don't agree, Trey. I think there is not a bad track on this album. Start to finish, every track gets an A from me. It is that good. Yeah, it's not that I think those last couple of songs are bad. Like I said, they just, the flow just changed, the, the flow of the album just sharply changes to me. So I wonder if maybe he had gotten his way and he had had the track order the way he wanted it. I wonder if that would have changed your perception there with the flow. I'll have to check out one of the other versions and listen to it. It, it, it could very well be that. That's, you know. Yeah, yeah. So... Peter Gabriel would release his next album after this, Us, in 92. So six years. And then his next album after that would be 10 whole years later. So he consistently was putting out albums anywhere from six to 10 years apart. He never quite matched the commercial success of So, nor do I think he needs to. You know, it, once you've already done something, you do not need to repeat yourself. We don't want so part two. Arguably, one of the most influential albums, not just of 86, of the 80s for sure. Oh, for, without a doubt. Without a and doubt. Quite possibly, Trey, of all time. I don't think I'm really going out on a limb by saying that. For sure. Just to, you know, I want to tell our listeners, just because I was a little dissatisfied side two of the album, doesn't mean I don't like the record. It, it's an excellent album. It, it's, like Lori just said, it's groundbreaking. And it's timeless. I mean, Red Rain, it In is. Your Eyes, they sound just as good in 2023 as they did in 1986. These tracks did not age. I certainly had fun revisiting this album. But I, I probably—I mean, probably the last time I heard this start to finish was 1987 or 88. Wow. And it's always fun. I've done that a couple of times over the course of the show, like with that Shabu Shabai. That okay. was probably the first time I'd heard that start to finish in 30 years. So that's been oh, fun, no. to do, fun to do with some of these records. That's cool. And so then Trey... Our next episode in two weeks, we're going to do another album deep dive, oh, and you'll yes. have an opportunity to do that as well. Do you want to talk about what we're going to do in two weeks? We're going to cover Duran Duran's Notorious, and this is one I've listened to many, many times over the course of the past, gosh, 40, almost 40 years now. Can you believe that? That is yeah. unbelievable. So on May 20th, we're going to do one more episode album deep dive from 1986 and that's going to be notorious by duran duran i love it i can't wait so thank you again for listening thank you for all the comments that people are leaving us on facebook on twitter uh on on the podcast we read them all we love them goodbye from me good night everybody y'all have a great night never do a podcast after you've had dental work then you know important safety tip 